Good morning, Liberty Lake Church. If you want to come in and stand with us, and we'll get started singing. got Don with announcements. <laughs> you got called out. <laughs> she called me Pee Wee Don. <laughs> <laughs> She's a neat little girl. I'm glad you're here today. Just a quick quiz. <coughs> How many of you are here today? Okay, we got four of you. That's good. <laughs> Very good. Tuesday, September 28th is family prayer night. Come and join us. Uh, prayer's a neat deal. And I know with the pandemic and a lot of the junk that goes on and so forth and so on, but something I really encourage you to do is at least uh, make note of it. Stick it on the refrigerator. 5.30 p.m. September 28th. Not that you can't pray other times, but join us where you are. You can, you can pray at home. Um, whatever, whatever you feel is appropriate for you. Youth group, Wednesday, September 29th. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Woo. Okay. Okay, you don't have to come. <laughs> Membership class. When you look around at this group and you say, wow, this is really cool, 
and you consider the fact that eternity, and we're going to spend eternity together with this group. We are a family, and we will be a family after we all graduate, move on. But if you are interested in joining this neat little church, or if you're interested in knowing what this church is about and uh, our pastors, elders, et cetera, et cetera, they're going to serve you lunch. So you're welcome to show up and ask questions and interact and kind of see uh, what this church is about, and it is part of the Evangelical Free Churches of North America, I think is the official title, or at least it was years back. Ladies Fall Soup Social. Yay! <laughs> There's a table set up out there. Um, they're asking that if you're interested, you sign up. And uh, it sounds like they have a lot of fun. My bride's involved in that. And uh, there's nothing better for fall than a hot bowl of soup. <laughs> we got a youngster out there that likes soup. You know, with all the, with all the, um, I just, I, I call it garbage. And I probably isn't, not a politically correct um, statement. But with everything that goes on in America right now and the pandemic and do you wear a mask or you don't wear a mask? Do you get a shot? Do you not get a shot? Do you shake hands or you bump elbows or all this different stuff that goes on is okay. It's okay. Because that's not important. And so what I, what I want to encourage us with today is Acts chapter 1. And when he said these things, this is Jesus, and they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and this is what they said. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the heavens? This Jesus, who was taken up, from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That's our hope. Focus on the right stuff, not the junk that's, it'll scare you to death. Thank you. You want to stand with us and we will continue our worship and music. of heights to the depths of the sea creations revealing your majesty from the colors of fall to the fragrance of spring 
indescribable, uncontainable. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You are amazing, God. Incomparable, unchangeable. You see the depths of my heart and you
I'll take a seat. Kids are dismissed to their classes. You can follow your, if there are teachers going. Yes, follow your teachers through the maze.
Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you again once this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking again in the book of uh, Jeremiah as we continue our trek through that book. Um, as you probably can tell, I am not Pastor Shane. Uh, Pastor Shane and the elders are on a retreat this weekend. Someone described their retreat as glamping. Um, they're they're sort of camping, but they're in like you know trailer, motorhome, whatever that stuff. Um, so, but if you think of them, you could pray for them as they're not just having fun. I'm sure they're doing that, but they're also doing some uh, planning and praying and considering uh, the Lord's work here in our church and the things that he has for us. Uh, my name is Alan Ulmer. I'm a member of this church, have been for about four years now. Um, but I've been a member of a church for over 50 years. So God has been good in my life and blessed me for a long period of time. However much longer, who knows? But I am pleased to be able to present to you the Word of God this morning. And so we will be looking at Jeremiah uh, chapter 29. And chapter 29 obviously falls after chapter 28 and before chapter 30. Uh, last week, if you were able to be here, uh, Gary covered chapters 27 and 28 and talked about false prophets, and Jeremiah's dealing with them. We're going to see a little bit more of that in 29. But as we go into chapter 30 and onward, we're going to see more and more of the Lord's promises to his people, the specifically the people who he has led into exile in Babylon. And ultimately, we'll see at the end of 31, his extensive promise to all of his people of all time, and that's the promise of the new covenant, which, of course, we have, we experience, we are blessed with in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've entitled the sermon this morning, The Will of the Lord, because in this text, we see numerous times where God says, I will do thus and such, or I have done thus and such. And we'll be looking at that more specifically, but just in general, when we think about the will of God, oftentimes we get this idea that it's, it's something that's elusive, it's something out there that somehow I've got to figure out what it is that God's will is for me. And lots of articles and books and speakers have addressed this idea that, that somehow God's will is really hard to find. And in that case, you know, where you find God's will might be different than where I find God's will. And what God's will for you is might be different than what God's will for me is. And there's some element of truth to those things, but... The essence of God's will is it's tied to his person. It's tied to who he is. And if we don't understand who he is, or we have 
a weak or small view of who he is, then our understanding of his will for us is going to be distorted. And it's not going to be accurate, and it may lead us even to believe things and do things that are inconsistent with who God is and what God has said about himself and about us. In theology, when you study God's will, there's really three primary aspects to God's will. There's the sovereign decrees of God, that before time began, in eternity past, God decreed whatever would happen, everything, every last detail. One theologian has gone so far as to say, there are no maverick molecules. His point being, there's nothing anywhere in the universe that happens that's outside of God's control and outside of God's using for his purposes ultimately to bring glory to himself. And of course, human beings being what we are, we want to figure out how God could do that. How could God sovereignly decree everything that happened? And so we spend a lot of time seeking for that. The interesting thing is, the word of God in Deuteronomy through Moses tells us that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So those are the things we need to look for, the things that God has proclaimed to us. The second aspect of God's will is one of those things. It's his preceptive will or his commands the things that he specifically tells us to do or not to do. And of course, as you know, the Bible is the primary source. We don't need to pray for the Holy Spirit to tell me what to do. He already has. It's here. And if you don't spend time in here, then obviously you won't know what that is. The other aspect of God's will is his will of disposition or the things that please him and the things that displease him. And those are the other things we need to seek after, which some of them are inherent in the commands. Some of them we see by example in the characters of the events of Scripture. I hesitate to use the word story uh, because when you say stories of Scripture, people tend to think, well, they're just fables. They're just fairy tales. They're just, you know, well, you read this story and you get these characters and you go, oh, yeah, there's a good guy and a bad guy and, you know, all that. Well, they're not just stories. These are real events that happened in real history with real people just like you and me. Yeah, they lived in a different culture, but they had the same inclination. But the other example, the primary example, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We sung about him in the songs earlier, the things that he has done for us. The primary thing he did was he was always obedient, and he declared that openly. He said, I didn't come to do what I want to do. I didn't come to say what I want to say. I came to do the will of my Father who sent me. 
And he always did the will of his Father who sent him. And so that, for us, exemplifies what God is calling us to. So when we start, start to see the will of God, there's aspects of his will that we, we can't know. We could not understand the mystery of the being of God, and we sung about some of that. But the things we can understand is the character of God that he declares about himself. For one thing, he calls himself the Lord. And in Jeremiah 29, we see the Lord 25 times. So he's making it clear, I'm the Lord. I'm not just another person, just a guy who happens to suggest that maybe if you do what I say, things might work out okay or not. The other aspect of God is he is holy to the superlative degree. We, we sang about the Lord being holy, holy. Well, his word actually declares him holy, holy, holy in Isaiah chapter 6. That's the superlative degree of holiness because that's what God is. But God also calls his people to be holy. He says, therefore, be holy just as I am holy. Holy is set apart. Holy is unique. Holy is not just your common everyday behavior or experience or activity. And we'll see some of that as we go on. I've chosen to break up chapter 29 into uh, three sections, and we'll look at those three sections uh, as we go along here. And then I have a couple of other points of text in the New Testament that coincide and support the things that we find in Jeremiah 29. The first section is verses 1 through 14, and I'd like to read those and then examine those a little bit together. So, Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers, had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, 
for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Throughout this text, we see numerous times where the Lord says or declares what he's going to do. He's displaying, conveying through Jeremiah with this letter, his will. We see it seven times in this section. We'll see it some other times in the other sections as we look at those. But as he declares this to the people, they're already in exile. And many of them are horrified at their circumstances. And they've come to the conclusion, to some degree, greater or lesser, depending on the people, that God has abandoned them. Or they've grabbed a hold of the lie which Gary brought about last week from chapter 28, one of the prophets who claimed that the Lord, within two years, was going to bring all the people back to the land of Israel and back to Jerusalem. And the people obviously wanted to believe that it would happen in two years. The problem was that is not the truth. And they had started to gravitate toward a lie. Isn't it amazing how easy it is to believe a lie? And when you're faced with the truth, you go, well, that can't be right because this is what I believe. And that's what they were doing. They were believing the lie of, oh, it's going to be a short period of time, and then God's going to bring us back. And the Lord said more than once, even before chapter 29 in Jeremiah, through Jeremiah, no, it's going to be a long time. It's going to be 70 years, which means, obviously, some of the people who are exiled to Babylon are going to die there. And in their view, to die outside of the land of Israel was a curse. And they couldn't fathom that God would somehow let that happen. So they really wanted to believe, no, we're going to actually go back. And we're going to be put back in place. And everything's going to be back to the way it was before. 
But the word of the Lord is very specific. And he gives them a very particular promise. What's interesting about this promise, uh, many of you, probably most of you, have heard this promise before and maybe even, in a certain sense, claimed this promise for yourself. Verse 11 in particular, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, I venture to say that a lot of money has been generated by this promise. Um, In fact, you could probably go to Hobby Lobby and find this promise on a sign or a mug or whatever. And and it's, it's a promise. It's a genuine promise. But the promise is in a context that we're not in. So to just rip it out of that context and to say, this is God's plan for me, isn't really a legitimate understanding of God's promise. The other aspects of his promise are true for us, and we'll look at those in just a moment. But to just simply take this out and say this is a promise for everybody, even in the context of just Jeremiah 29, doesn't work that way. There's a study, a a learning process uh, of interpretation that's called hermeneutics. You don't have to remember that, but it's based on the name of the ancient Greek god Hermes, who was the god, uh, the messenger god. You've probably seen depictions of him. He's got the wings on his feet, and he flies to bring this message, and His job was to make sure that the message was understandable. Otherwise, what good is it? If he brings a message people don't understand, then it's a waste of his effort and time. But the science of interpretation doesn't just apply to Scripture. It applies to any literature. Historically, in the United States of America, the primary institution that was designed to interpret for our benefit is the uh, Supreme Court. They were set up to interpret the Constitution of the United States of America. And they were tasked from the beginning to examine the statements within the Constitution and understand the language that was used and the context in which it was placed in order to convey how we are supposed to conduct ourselves in the United States of America. And as you probably know, if you've studied any history or are familiar with history, no other country in the world has had that kind of an institution or that kind of a document, save the people of Israel, with the scriptures, and the God of Israel. But unfortunately, because people being people, they don't want to hear, no, you can't do that. And so shifts have been made in our understanding of the Constitution and how it should be applied or not. And 
Therefore, the, the body of the Supreme Court has become less and less and less an institution, a group of people that interpret the Constitution, and they simply say, well, this is what we think it means. This is what I want it to say. And then we get those that are on one side proclaiming one particular slant, and you get those on another side that are portraying a different slant, and you no longer interpret the words. You just say, well, this is what we think. This is our decision. And they become a legislative body rather than an interpretive body. And as our culture disintegrates, as we move away from that format, which really is a picture of how God operates, and we get into uh, taking polls and using statistics and saying, well, the majority of the people want this, so let's give it to them. Well, that's really good. Based on Scripture, we're told, you know, our hearts are deceitful. And they, we deceive ourselves. And we think that this would be better for us. And the framers of the Constitution knew better. And obviously, the Word of God and God Almighty knows better. But we don't always want to pay attention to that. But in this context... Jeremiah wrote this letter. It was dictated to him by God Almighty. This is the word of God. As we're told in the New Testament, every word of Scripture is breathed out by God. He has literally spoken it. Whether he's the one that verbalizes it or whether he uses a messenger, a mediator, is inconsequential. It's his message. And if we don't want to honor that message, there will be consequences, and we're going to see that here. But the consequences that are spelled out initially in this section is, God says, I know what I'm doing. You have to trust me. I know the plans that I have set in place. And just because you don't know them doesn't mean I'm out to ruin your life. What I want you to do is where I have sent you, which he says numerous times there, uh, in verse 4, verse 7, verse 14, verse 18, and verse 20, just in this section, or yeah, 18 and 20 going to the next, but he said, I sent you into exile. It isn't just Nebuchadnezzar who got a wild hair and said, oh, I'm going to go conquer Israel and drag all those people away. God sent the people there. And that was part of his original promise to them way back. He said, if you want to obey me and you want to follow my laws and you want to worship me exclusively because I am the only God, then I'll bless you and you'll live in this land and you will prosper. But if you want to disobey me and you want to ignore my word and you want to go worship all the other things all around you besides me, guess what? I'll just take you out of here. I'll give the land to somebody else or I'll just let it go wild, which is more of what happened. What's interesting here in this context, the word that the ESV translates welfare, some other versions translate it peace, 
is the Hebrew word shalom. And we always think of shalom as peace. And we always think of it as applied to God's people. But God says, no, you pray for the shalom of the place where I sent you, for that city and for those people and for the, what happens there. The difficulty with the translation of the word welfare is in our culture, we tend to think of welfare as a government handout rather than well-being or holistic is a term that you may be familiar, familiar with. What God is saying is pray and work towards the blessing and the goodness and the well-being of not just yourselves, but the place where you are that I have sent you, because when things go well there, they'll go well for you. But my long-term plan is I have a shalom for you that's way beyond this existence in this land. What is the Lord promising to the people? Is he just promising them a good life now? He is that, but that's only a very, very small piece of what he promises to them. Because after verse 11, you have verse 12. What's God's intent in sending them into exile and separating them from the familiarity of Jerusalem and Judah and the rest of the land of Israel, he says in verse 12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. Earlier in Jeremiah, he had promised the people, he had commanded them, stop praying to me. Stop bringing your sacrifices. Stop coming and appealing for me to stop what I have already planned to do because I'm not going to listen to you anymore. Because my plan is already set. You've already created this scenario by your disobedience, and so I'm going to do what I've promised to do. I'm going to take you from this. But he has a purpose, verse 12. Then you will say, oh, guess what? We should look to God instead of to these idols or to our own devices, our own means, our own plans. And then he continues. He says in verse 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek, with, seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. The Lord is promising them himself. He says, I will be found by you. You will seek me. You will find me. I will listen to your prayers. I will answer you. I will restore you. Uh, 
I didn't find it in any commentaries, but I didn't look at very many. But I see in this scenario a picture of our existence. We live here temporarily. According to one of the psalmists in the Psalms, 70 or by measure of strength, 80 years, you'll live on, you know, this, you'll live this life. Now, whether you live more than that or less than that doesn't destroy the truth that this life is temporary. This isn't our permanent existence. This isn't where we should be staking our eternal inheritance, as we know from the whole of Scripture. This is a place, in a sense, of, of exile. We can't go where the Lord is, but the Lord came to us to describe to us and explain to us that there is a better place. There is more than this. This is only preparatory for that. And if you're very young or moderately young, you probably are more involved here than thinking about going there. We don't know for sure where there is, except that whenever heaven is described in Scripture, it's always up. But the text that Don Anderson read during the announcement time, you know, the, the disciples of Jesus, they watched Jesus go up, and they were just standing there looking up because that's where Jesus went. But the angels came along and said, now nah, your job is down here. Going up is later. And there's that struggle that those of us who are getting older start to say, you know, I don't really care that much about what's happening here. I want to go there. Because what I see happening here is very disconcerting to me. It upsets me, and I don't like it. But, in that process, we're still commanded similarly to what God commanded his people here. Seek the shalom of this place. Do what you can do to make this place as good as you can make it, even though we're only here temporarily. Yeah, it's easier to go home and shut the door and turn off the TV and watch a movie or something else, and ignore what's going on in the world. But that doesn't make it go away. And that doesn't fulfill what God has commanded us to do. And we're going to see that in the New Testament, that Paul was commanding, using the Word of God once again, Paul was God's mediator, to say, we have a job to do here, but this isn't everything. The job we do here prepares us for there and potentially brings others along to go with us. So the will of the Lord for the exiles was settle in, live your lives, expand your families, so that when I come to fulfill my promise, there won't just be a few of you. He said, don't decrease. He said, increase. Have kids. Teach them. 
Grow them, prepare them so that when I come, they will go and meet and receive the fulfillment of my promise. Which again is a picture of what we're here to be about. This life isn't everything. Do the people around you that you know, know that? Do they understand that? Do they realize that they could do everything that's possible on this planet to be whatever they consider successful and then not be prepared for genuine true life, what we call eternal life? Jesus, as he was praying to his father, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in John chapter 17, said, this is eternal life, that they, referring to all of his people, know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Well, hopefully we all know that. We all know the one true God. We all know that he's Lord God Almighty, that he's sovereign over all, and that he has a plan that's in place that's unchangeable, cannot be thwarted. Nobody, according to Daniel chapter 4, even the very words of Nebuchadnezzar, the king himself, he says of God, no one can stay his hand and nobody's going to be able to go to God in eternity and say, why did you do what you did? Because we'll know that God is God and he does what he does because he is God. If God is not sovereign, then he's not God. And if he's not God, then we're all wasting our time here and pretty much anything else we do. But God promises to be God, but he also promises to make his people like him. So the will of the Lord for his people is to do what he's equipped them to do, do what he's commanded them to do in the place where they are in preparation for the place that he's going to take them to, which initially will be, of course, take them back to the land of Israel, but ultimately will be to take them into his presence to be with him forever, which is where we can see the correlation of the promise we have to be careful not to make every aspect of this promise our own. What's the will of the Lord for the false prophets? Well, Gary brought out some of that last week. Let's take a look at verses 15 through 23 here in Jeremiah 29. Because you have said, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon... Thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David and concerning all the people who dwell in this city, your kinsmen who did not go out with you into exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with sword, famine, and pestilence, and will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse, a terror, a hissing, and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them. Because they did not pay attention to my words, declares the Lord, 
that I persistently sent to you by my servants, the prophets, but you would not listen, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles whom I sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Peliah, and Zedekiah, son of Maaseah, who are prophesying a lie to you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall strike them down before your eyes. Because of them, this curse shall be used by all the exiles from Judah in Babylon. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Because they have done an outrageous thing in Israel, they have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives, and they have spoken in my name lying words that I did not command them. I am the one who knows, and I am witness, declares the Lord. So the Lord speaks in general of the people that stay there, and then he speaks specifically of Ahab and Zedekiah. But of the people who stayed behind and said, oh, we're not going into exile. We're staying here. We're going to stand our ground. This is our land. This is our city. Well, we saw earlier through Pastor Shane, chapter 24, the vision that God gave to Jeremiah of the figs, the horrible, nasty figs and the really good figs. And the really good figs were representative of the people that obeyed the Lord and went into exile which are the ones we just saw the Lord commanded to settle in and live. The other ones were the nasty figs. They were so rotten you couldn't even eat them. I don't know if you've had any familiarity with figs, but they tend to be sweet and no, they're okay. But when they get really yucky, you don't even want to pick them up. They're gooey and sticky and they stink. But the Lord tells them twice which Jeremiah told the prophet in chapter 28, the one that God promised would die at the end, you know, before the end of the year, and he did. Um, Jeremiah's word then, as it is now, is those people are going to experience sword, famine, and pestilence because they disobeyed God. Now, it's interesting, there's an evangelistic um, approach to telling people about the Lord, and one of the tenets of that approach is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And that's true for some, but to make that true for everybody, we can't know that. That's one of the aspects of God's will that we don't know. Because when you see this context here, sword, famine, and pestilence, and being roasted in the fire, doesn't sound like a wonderful plan for your life. So why would we put those words in God's mouth and then tell people that lie? Because that's what it is. 
Now, being saved by the grace of God, which is exhibited in Christ, and Christ's work for his people, is a marvelous thing. And it is a wonderful plan, and it's more than just for this life. It's for ever. Because if anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation. Everything old has passed away. He's become new. And nobody can do that but God. And nobody knows who's going to be the recipient of that except God. He simply called us to proclaim the message that Jesus is the only way. As Jesus himself said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. The will of the Lord for those who lie in his name is not a wonderful plan. Psalm 138, verse 2, the Lord says, I have exalted above all things my name and my word. And if we don't join him in exalting his name and his word, some of this sword, famine, and pestilence might be what's coming our way. And it's potential that that's what's happening in America today as we've turned away from exalting the name of the Lord and his word and we exalt all kinds of other stuff. God goes even further in this text in chapter 29 and he singles out one particular guy. Beginning in verse 24, he says, To Shemaiah of Nehelam, you shall say, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, You have sent letters in your name to all the people who are in Jerusalem and to Zephaniah, the son of Maaseah, the priest, and to all the priests, saying, The Lord has made you priest instead of Jehoiada, the priest, to have charge in the house of the Lord over every madman who prophesies to put him in the stocks and neck irons. Now, why have you not rebuked Jeremiah of Anathoth, who is prophesying to you? For he has sent to us in Babylon, saying, Your exile will be long. Build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. Zephaniah the priest read this letter in the hearing of Jeremiah the prophet. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, Send to all the exiles, saying, Thus says the Lord concerning Shemaiah of Nehalem, because Shemaiah had prophesied to you when I did not send him and has made you trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will punish Shemaiah of Nehalem and his descendants. He shall not have anyone living among this people, and he shall not see the good that I will do to my people, declares the Lord, for he has spoken rebellion against the Lord. Here again, we have the Lord saying and declaring very specific activity that he's going to undergo. He doesn't even talk in here about the means. In the previous section, we saw the means 
of his punishment was Nebuchadnezzar himself going to put the guys in the fire. Now, unlike Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, also known to us as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom God rescued from Nebuchadnezzar's fire, God promises that Zedekiah and Ahab are not going to be rescued. I mean, it's almost as if in the king's palace, there might be this little discussion going on saying, who's going to warm the palace for us tonight? Oh, well, these two false prophets from Israel, we're going to let them warm us up. But in the case of Shemaiah, God just says, I will punish him. Now, how he does it, we don't know. We're not told. But he does say he's not going to have any descendants, and he's not going to see the fulfillment of my promise because he caused the people to believe a lie, and he's spoken rebellion. He's stirring up trouble amongst my people. Psalm chapter 33 describes how God does some of the things that God does. Verses 10 through 12, Psalm 33, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. God does what God does because he's God. And God calls us to trust him and to obey him because we're not God. And when we start trusting in other things or in ourselves more than him, there are consequences. Matthew chapter uh, 7, Jesus describes some consequences. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus is speaking. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What we say, if it doesn't coincide with the word of God and doesn't coincide with God's activity and isn't generated by God's work within our hearts, is lawlessness, according to Jesus. A very specific example would be the person of Judas. Judas was one of 
the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. Judas, if you read the scriptures closely in in the Gospels, he went out with the rest of the 12, and they did all kinds of things. They did miracles, and they did wonderful things. They proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom of God. But Judas didn't know Jesus in that sense of having a trusting, I depend on you relationship. Judas was in it for the money and for himself. And Judas, the scriptures describe to us, is the son of perdition. He, he was destined to not be part of the kingdom. And that's the harsh reality. That's not my message. I would rather that God grade on a curve. I would rather that God gave us the benefit of the doubt and said, well, you're basically a good person, so we'll let you in. Or even the potential of the theology which states, well, there's an interim period where I go from here to another place, and in that place I can get you know, all the bad stuff out, and then, then I can go to the best place. That's not in the Scriptures. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. And that's the reality. And it's not my reality. It's the reality of God and his plan. The will of God for those outside of Christ is go away from me. I didn't know you. We didn't have a relationship. Romans chapter 6 is one of probably a thousand texts in Scripture that describe the will of the Lord for those who are in Christ. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. God has called us to be holy. 
He has called us to be people dedicated to righteousness and abstaining from sinfulness. A further text, and we will close with this one in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, further describes the will of the Lord for those of us who are in Christ. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body, I'm sorry, in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives us his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. A little more practical working out of what the will of the Lord is for us who are in Christ. There's common everyday things, and the purpose of those common everyday things is not self-serving. It's to love one another. It's to serve one another. It's to work at more and more becoming sanctified, set apart. This is all there is, and that the things that we forevermore fully and freely, apart from sin, apart from selfishness, worship Him forevermore.
Our God and our Father, we thank you and praise you for your wonderful truth. We thank you that you are God and that you have declared yourself so and you have demonstrated that truth. We also know that you have demonstrated that we can trust you, that ultimately his very own death, the Lord Jesus Christ said, I always do what pleases my Father. And he has called us to do the same, to trust you that death is not the end. And death is not a loss. We think of death often as, oh, we're going to lose out on all the good things of this life. Well, the good things of this life don't even come close to the glorious things of eternal life in your presence forever and ever and ever. And God, we ask that you would bless us with these truths, cause us to examine our lives and examine our thoughts and our processes and our focus and to seek to trust you and to live for you to bring you the glory that you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we sing, oh, hello. You want to stand with us? Come, thou fount of every blessing, to my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never cease. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. 
God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Have a good week. I will remind everyone that we do have some celebratoriness happening with cake out in the foyer.